0: Jesus called us to radical living. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning, so I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. James chapter 2. Uh, if you would like a copy of the Bible we ha- and didn't pick one up, uh, we have some. Our ushers would be glad to hand one to you. Slip up your hand. Uh, i glad to hand out a copy of the Bible. It's on page 837 if you use the uh, paperback uh, that the bridge uh, provides. 837, James chapter 2. Verses one through thirteen. In James one, we learned about handling trials, we learned about dealing with temptation, and about doing the word and not just being hearers of the word only. And uh, today, uh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at this whole idea of playing favoritism, personal faz- favoritism. And I'm going to begin by reading a story by Christian author and professor. Tony Campolo. How many have heard of Tony Campolo? He's a little more of my generation. Uh, Tony is a professor, author, uh, conference speaker, um, good, good Christian thinker. He writes I walked down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. That's his home. There was a filthy bum. That's his word for a homeless man. Covered with a soot, head to toe. He had a huge beard. I'll never forget the beard. It was a gigantic beard with rotted food stuck in it. He held up a cup of McDonald's coffee and mumbled as he walked along the street. He spotted me and said, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I knew I should take some to be nice, and I did. And I gave it back to him and said, You're being pretty generous giving away your coffee this morning. What's gotten into you that you're giving away your coffee all of a sudden? He said, Well, the coffee was especially delicious this morning, and I figured if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I figured this is a perfect setup. I said, Is there anything I can give you in return? I'm sure he's going to hit me up for five bucks. He said, You could give me a big hug. I was hoping for $5. (laughs) He put his arms around me, and I put my arms around him, and I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. He was holding on to me, and here I am, an establishment guy, and this is a bum is hanging on to me. He's hugging me. He's not going to let me go. People are passing on the street. They're staring at me. I'm embarrassed, but little by little, my embarrassment turned to awe. I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was the bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For if you did it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And if you failed to do it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you failed to do it unto me. bit of a paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew 25. You know, sometimes we feel uncomfortable with people. Sometimes we don't know what to do or say. Sometimes we might even feel embarrassed about interacting with certain people. The truth is, sometimes we even feel like we're better than some people. The truth is, sometimes we feel that certain people are better than us and somehow more valuable than us. And we sometimes treat them better than others. The Apostle James warns us in James chapter 2 not to play favorites. That's what we begin today on your outline. Christ's followers must not play favorites. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 7. Christ's followers must not play favorites because favoritism violates God's character. Verse 1, favoritism violates God's character. And he writes, my brothers... My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. James begins with addressing brothers. He's talk as his family talk. Uh, brothers uh, is a reference to believers in Jesus, both male and female. Uh, it's to the church. And he calls them believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was especially glorious because of the resurrection. That's when James encountered Jesus and really got who James was. Remember back from our very first week that James, the writer of the book of James, was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same home as Jesus, and he thought a lot of Jesus, but never really got who Jesus was. And he thought, and in fact... When Jesus was having a public ministry, he began to think Jesus was going over the top. That he was um, kind of maybe going crazy a little bit. And then James encountered Jesus after the resurrection. Everything changed. And now he's calling his brother, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's a humble amazing way to describe your brother. The point is my brothers as believers in our Lord Jesus our glorious Lord Jesus Christ don't show favoritism. It's not consistent with a glorious Lord Jesus Christ to show favoritism. When you think about Jesus, when you think about who Jesus is, Jesus didn't play favorites. And he's saying don't show favoritism. Favoritism violates God's character. Romans chapter two, verse eleven, Scripture says, For God does not show favoritism the way he treats people. That's just not the way God does it. That's not his nature. Ephesians chapter six and verse nine. The apostle Paul writes these words, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. We don't have that kind of um uh, relationship in our in our culture today in america where we have masters and slaves he uh, we think in terms of about application about um, employer and employee he says don't threaten your servants since you know the one who is both their master and yours your master is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him who is the master well it's jesus christ the glorious lord jesus christ um, he doesn't play favorites there's going to be no favoritism when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ when believers face Jesus. Colossians 3:25 very similar. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there is no favoritism at the judgment seat of Christ when we face Jesus as believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 10. So, favoritism violates God's character. Also, preferential treatment for financial and social status is evil. This is what where James goes in verses 2 through 4. Preferential treatment for financial or for social status is evil. And so, James gives us in verse 2 a hypothetical case. Look at verse 2. Suppose a man, so hypothetical, suppose a man comes into your meeting a meeting of believers, a church gathering where they're going to worship, um, where, they're, where they're going to, there's going to be teaching from the Word of God. And su- suppose this man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. When James speaks of the the marks of this um man with a gold ring, he's talking about a man of some stature because of the fine clothing and the the word that's used here for fine clothing, Um, the idea of somebody of senatorial status, somebody wearing a specific toga that deserves recognition. And uh, so in this hypothetical case, two people come in. One is rich, one is poor, one is shabby. And the word shabby is the idea of filthy, perhaps smelly uh, clothes. So they both come in, and um, verse 3, if you show special attention, if, here's the condition, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and say, "Here, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. So there's preferential treatment here. Special attention is given to the one who dresses better the one who has a higher social standing standing the one who uh, has a higher economic standing and the poor man is treated poorly hey sit on the floor by my footstool where where i'm sitting and and the the word is footstool is used here and in this room uh they apparently had a place to put their feet for some people and so he's inviting the poor man to sit down where my feet are where my sandals are where where uh I don't know if I have clean feet or not, but that's where, the, that's where the poor man's invited to sit. Verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The answer is yes. That's the, that's the assumption that James makes here with this question. And uh, the way he writes it with the condition, we already know the answer. The answer is yes. Yes. Um, James says you discriminate against the poor man. James says this is evil when you discriminate. Verses 5 through 7, financial resources and social status can blind us to the real value of people. Financial resources and social status can blind us to the real value of evil. Author Philip Yancey, in the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, asked the question, why should God single out the poor for special attention over any other group? And verse 5 says, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised for those who love Him? So Philip Yancey asked the question, why would God single out the poor for special attention? Here's what he writes. The poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence with one another. The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance. And no exaggerated need of privacy. The poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. We get confused about that sometimes. The poor can wait because they have acquired a kind of dogged patience. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and want. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not a threat or scolding. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. By the way, any, any of you here choose to be poor intentionally? There's quite a few benefits there. James chapter 2 verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Question? Answer? Yes. God has chosen the poor. In the first century, about... um, 8% of the population would be considered wealthy. 2% would be considered up and coming. 90% would be at poverty level in the first century. No middle class. That's us in America. Middle Middle class with the hope of upward mobility. Not so in the church in the first century. The church was primarily about poor people. In the first century. Yes, there were a few wealthy people, but primarily poor people. James is writing primarily to a poor audience. Verse 6 But you, to the church, have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? The answer is yes. James cites um, a first century example of the rich are they not the ones slandering the noble name to whom you belong now we don't know exactly what was going on uh, but we know and he's talking about people in the culture of their day who don't know Christ who are rich and they're getting special treatment because they're rich and um, he's saying are you not insulting? the poor. Um, James saying this is illogical and it's wrong. Are they not the ones slandering the noble name of him? Who is the noble name? The glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And his name is being slandered. So uh, sometimes, number one, lacking wealth enables one to see that Sometimes lacking wealth enables one to see the need to depend on God. That's just the principle of life. When you're facing a crisis, you think it's more likely that you're going to think to turn to God. People who are poor know they don't have all the resources they need, and so they ask for help. And it's easy for them to see the need for God. It's also easier for them sometimes to trust God. I'm just talking about a general principle. The second one is like this. this is number two, sometimes having wealth impedes one's desire to depend on God. The American dream impedes us from depending on God. When we think about upward mobility when we think about acquiring more, when we think about uh, raising our our uh, social status. And so, you know, just a practical question, does your lifestyle, the way you choose to live right now, does that impede your dependence on God? See, the way we often live is that we handle life on our own pretty well, and then occasionally we need God, and occasionally we ask God for help. But if you're in a crisis, and you're poor, and you have all kinds of needs, the only place you can turn is to God. Which is the better place to be? So verses 1 through 7, Christ followers must not play favorites. Christ followers must not play favorites. Number two, Christ followers must follow the royal law, verses 8 through 13, chapter 2. The royal law is to love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 8. James writes, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're, You're doing right. If you do this, you're doing right. The law is found in Scripture. This royal law is found in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's kind of interesting here. This is tucked away in the book of Leviticus. How many of you have had your quiet... Don't raise your hand. How many of you have had your quiet time in the book of Leviticus recently? This is tucked away in the book of Leviticus. This is the only time it appears in the Old Testament. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's just tucked away. It's not even the whole verse. It's only really half of the verse, of verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. We know it from Jesus' clarification in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. In an encounter that's very uh, well known. Uh, somebody was testing Jesus, one of the um, religious leaders of Jesus's day. And he says, "Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law and the, and the goal was was to trick Jesus. you know we're going to ask this carpenter, this uneducated guy, how well he knows what his theological perspective is on the Old Testament. Six hundred and thirteen commandments in the Old Testament, and he says, Which is the greatest?" So it's a trick question. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Bingo. That's it. It's the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right out of Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is saying, if you study all of the Old Testament, you can break down the Old Testament into these two commands. Love God first, love your neighbor second as yourself. All the other commandments fit right there. It's about putting God first, worshiping him, having him above everything else, and then make sure you love your neighbor the way you treat him. That's why you don't lie and you don't steal and you don't commit adultery, because that's about your neighbor. That's why you honor your parents. That's about your neighbor. You don't covet because that's about your neighbor. And so Jesus is saying these are the two greatest commandments. James chapter 2, verse 8, if you keep the royal law. Why did James uh, call this the royal law? Question, why did James call this the royal law? And it is because it is the law of the king. It's royal because of the king. It is the law of the kingdom of God. It is the royal law because Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. And it's about his kingdom. In verse nine, uh, James is just going to say it one more time. Favoritism is wrong. Just to make this clear for us, favoritism is wrong. I've misplaced page 5. It's glued together. James chapter 2, verse 9. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you show favoritism, you sin. And uh, he's saying if you even think favoritism... James chapter 1 says, sin begins in the mind. It's how you view people. It's not just how you act, but it's how you view people. Favoritism begins in the mind, and favoritism is sin. Verses 10 and 11, favoritism violates the whole law. It violates the entire law. Look at verse 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, we don't think in terms of the Ten Commandments very much, but think it through this way. We sort of, I think, have a problem here in American Christianity. And we think in terms of, well, let's just take the Ten Commandments, for example. If I keep nine of them, that's pretty good, you know. That's 90%. And if you grade on a curve, that's an A-. That's good. But that's, that's not the point. That's how we like to view it. I'm pretty good. In fact, when I compare myself with you, I'm better than you. We have a tendency to compare ourselves with our friends. Well, you know, yeah, I've done all these things, but I'm not as bad as them. And here's what James uh, reminds us of here, is that if you just break one of the tiny ones, there aren't any tiny ones in the ten, but if you just, what you think is tiny, the the point of it all is you have just violated all of it. You violated the whole because the law of God is whole. Or take all the commandments in the Bible and just view them as a whole. So you violate a tiny one, you violated, the, the whole thing got broken by you. And we have a tendency to think, well, my sin is just a little bit of sin. And James is saying, no, this is serious. Verse 12, your speech and action should be aligned with Jesus's words to obey everything I have commanded you. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So Jesus was looking for total obedience we're a little more comfortable with partial obedience. And James says in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act. It's about our speaking. It's about our actions. So he's saying, when you speak about others, stop and think. When you speak about others, speak as though you're about to face Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Be careful what you say about others. And when you act... Think about your actions. Are they fitting for the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And we just have a tendency to take favoritism as just a little tiny sin. And James is saying, nope, it's evil. It's evil. Verse 13, practice mercy toward others because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Practice mercy toward others. Practice mercy toward the under-resourced and the disenfranchised. Don't expect mercy from God if you don't show mercy to others. There's a very important principle uh, for our lives in this passage. The key thought Mercy triumphs over judgment. This may be the only thing that you remember today. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you have to if if you have to err on the side of mercy or judging someone, err on the side of showing mercy to people. Err on this I'm not saying show mercy in every case and never be um, never uh, pursue justice. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you're in the balance, go for mercy. See if this helps. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh. You should know this passage, or many of you do. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. That's really a good thing. He knew how to relate to people. He knew when to be gracious. He knew um, that the woman at the well needed to be treated Graciously, He knew that the woman caught in an adultery needed to be treated graciously. He could have nailed them with the truth. This is sin. You're, you're, you're evil. You're going to go to hell if you live like this. He could have said that. It would have been accurate. That's truth. But he was full of grace, and he treated them very graciously. He was also full of truth. He knew the truth. He knew when to apply the truth. He certainly did that with the religious leaders when he called them on the carpet. Jesus was full of grace. There's so much you and I can learn about just trying to live life full of grace and truth, trying to be like Jesus and trying to think, should I be gracious? Being truthful is about pursuing justice, and we need to do that. We have a tendency to lean on one side or the other. Those people who are feel, you know, some of you have the gift of mercy and you feel mercy and you feel loving really easily. And you want all of us to, just to fall on the side of grace. And there's some of you who are really strong with knowledge and strong with truth and strong with justice. And you'd like all of us to be just and apply it all the time and make things right right now. And the tendency can be to be legalistic and judgmental. There's a little bit of danger there. There's a tendency to be so syrupy, sweet, we never talk about the truth if we're focusing on mercy. There's a balance. Jesus was full of grace and truth. In John 1, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, "...from the fullness of His grace." We have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And and it's just to say we need to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Uh, And when we are filled with grace and truth, we won't play favorites. Um, What core value does James bring to our attention We've been seeing this all morning. The core value, people matter to God. All people matter to God. Rich people and poor people and people with a high level of education and people with no education. It doesn't matter the color of skin. It doesn't matter ethnic background. All people matter to God. Back where we started our service, John 3.16, we have... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loves people, all people, that he gave his one and only son. That's value. And that's the kind of value we should place on people, the way God loves people. And it's treating them with value and and dignity. A 2010 survey of Newsweek concluded, in all elements of the workplace, from hiring to politics to promotions, looks matter. Appearance matters. Is there a way that we discriminate in our culture? Um, The Newsweek article says, favoritism happens. 57% of hiring managers believe an unattractive but qualified job candidate will have A harder time getting hired because appearance matters. Favoritism continues. 68% of hiring managers believe that once hired, looks will affect the way managers rate an employee's job performance. So if you look good, your job performance is going to look better. Newsweek reports your looks matter more than your resume. Fifty-nine percent of hiring managers advise spending as much time and money making sure that you look attractive as perfecting your resume. Newsweek says it's worse for women. Sixty-one percent of hiring managers and 60 percent of them were men said that women would benefit from wearing clothes that show off their figure. Newsweek says we judge overweight people. Although 75% of Americans are overweight, about 66% of the managers said they thought some managers would hesitate before hiring someone who was significantly overweight. Newsweek says we also judge old people. 84% of managers said their bosses would hesitate before hiring a qualified candidate who looked much older than his or her coworkers. And Newsweek says, we think favoritism based on looks is okay. 64% of hiring managers said they believe companies should be allowed to hire people uh, based on their looks. Here's a question for you. Do you play favorites for, for how attractive people are to you? According to the Wall Street Journal, October 2nd, 2010, most of us like to assume that we're enlightened, tolerant, and unprejudiced people. Unfortunately, a new study reveals many of us have a hidden bias against anyone with a foreign accent. According to a summary of the study in the Wall Street Journal, quote, the further from native surrounding an accent is, the harder we have to work And less trustworthy we perceive the information to be. It gets worse. Researchers found that the heavier the accent, the more skeptical participants became. In other words, if it sounds like you're not from around here, my suspicion radar is on high alert. My bias about you isn't based on your character. It's based on the fact that you talk different. Researchers want to reassure us that we're not really racist or prejudiced. Thank goodness. Apparently, we're just lazy. Well, again, they don't want to pass judgment. We're not actually lazy. Our brains are lazy. And the researchers word, our brains prefer the path to least resistance. So if you're not like me, I'm not comfortable is what the message is. So do you have a tendency to show favoritism to people who are just plain mostly like you? James tells us not to show favoritism. Let me pray. God, we just acknowledge that you are not a respecter of persons. And that you have called us not to play favorites. Father, may we be sensitive about how we treat others. May we indeed love others the way we care about ourselves. May we treat them with dignity and honor and value. May your love shine through us for the sake of Jesus in his name I pray. Amen.